They fittingly bookend our reading from Mark chapter 1 this morning. So let, let me remind you what our opening prayer is. When I pray before us, it's called our opening collect. And this is the collect for the day as, as well as the collect for the week. And here is the collect on page 602 of our prayer book uh, that sort of gathers our attention as we come to worship. I prayed this, give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call. To answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation. So here's the call. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call. The call to proclaim. The call to proclaim. Mark chapter 1 and verse 17 from our gospel text. And Jesus said to them, and here's the call, follow me. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So I want to I dwell here in this verse for just a few minutes. A lot of us are pretty familiar with this phrase, okay? So I'm going to get nerdy for a second. Stay with me. Actually, this whole sermon is very nerdy in a lot of different ways, okay? So stay with me. Verse 17, grammatically, there are three verbs. There are three verbs in this sentence, and they're all done by Jesus. So that's what a verb is. Someone does an action. The first one is Jesus spoke. That's pretty simple, okay? The second verb is Jesus will make. He will make. He's going to do this. And the third is Jesus will make you become. And that's the word for being born. Uh, so coming into being or being made. So Jesus will make you become. Jesus is doing all the action. But I don't know about you. When I read this verse, my focus isn't so much on Jesus. It's definitely not on Jesus. Nor is it on the fact that Jesus is doing all the action. He's the subject of the verbs. No, I hear another verb. I hear a pressure-packed imperative. This is how I read this verse. And here it is. Follow me. Follow me. This isn't an imperative. It's not even a verb in this sentence. But it hits that way. Does it hit you that way? It hits me that way. Follow me. And the other thing I think we focus on is, again, it's not Jesus or what Jesus does on our behalf, but it's what he is making. So none of those verbs are what I focus on. It's what he will create his disciples to be. And we're probably all familiar with this phrase, but we haven't really sort of thought about what it means. Fishers of men. Fishers of men. This is the direct object of Jesus' action. This is what he is accomplishing, what he is making us into, but it's a pretty loaded, pressure-packed phrase for many of us, right? I don't know. I don't know about you. Growing up for the church a little bit, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. That sounds like pressure. So at the beginning of our reading, Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he's near the Sea of Galilee. He's just come out of... He's just come out of the wilderness and through the Jordan River, and he's near the sea, and he sees two sets of fishermen brothers in our text. The first set is Simon and Andrew, or Simon Peter. We're familiar with Peter. So Simon and Andrew, and then he sees James and John. And so after proclaiming the gospel, he says, I am going to make you new. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you something utterly new, a new kind of fisherman. 
as you come after me. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this on your behalf. And the next verse in verse 18, and perhaps the last and maybe the most pressure-packed word in our text, immediately. Immediately. I've heard a lot of sermons on this word. Immediately, they left everything and follow, followed Jesus. Now, just, just a brief aside, this is Mark's favorite word. Immediately, the gospel writer Mark, he uses this word a lot. And, it, and it's meant to make the, the story move along quickly. Immediately, 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 immediately. In the first 20 verses of Mark's gospel, four times, four times he mentions it. Immediately after his baptism, something happened. Immediately, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Immediately, Andrew and Simon left and followed. Immediately, Jesus called John and James. You get the idea. He likes this word. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospels, and it moves really quickly. And this word is one of the reasons why it moves quickly. Look just after our sermon text in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and what? Immediately. Immediately on the Sabbath he entered in the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Verse 29. And immediately, I could go on. I could keep going on. So what, what's the point here? The point is... There is urgency in Mark's gospel, but it's not because of this word. So what, what do I mean by that? Immediately is, is a transition word. That's, that's what it, in Mark, there's not a lot of significance to it. He's just going from one thing to the next, and he likes to use this word. It doesn't necessarily mean fast, though. Okay, so hear what I mean by that. The story in Mark's gospel moves quickly. But it doesn't mean that everything happened really quickly in real time, okay? In real time, it doesn't mean that. So hear my gospel and now follow me. That's we, we hear like decide right now, five, four, three, two, one, make a decision. That's how we hear this word immediately, but that's not that's not how we're meant to read that. So we as readers, so I'm going to make a distinction here, and this is important. We as readers of this story are meant to feel importance and the urgency of responding to the gospel right mark wants us to hear this response to hear this proclamation over and over again and hear the response to this proclamation so the first thing to say is don't wait don't wait respond today today is the day to follow Today is the day. So believe in Jesus. That's clearly what's happening. Not because you're doing anything great. That's clear in this text. You're not doing the action. Jesus, for the next, especially the next seven or eight chapters, Jesus is the one who heals. He is the one who casts out demons. He's, he makes people new throughout this gospel. He is doing the action over and over again. And like the disciples, we're simply called called to follow him as he does the action we're following him and we're talking about him as he's doing these things this is the idea so jesus is the strong and powerful one he is the one who teaches with authority just after our text and everyone is astonished at his teaching and incidentally this is why he calls fishermen 
Have you ever thought about that? Why does he call fishermen and not all the influential leaders of the day? Not the great leaders or the politicians or the famous orators of the day. He doesn't call them. He calls simply, simple fishermen and tax collectors and the like so that the power of God might be on display. So that he would get the glory. Not the power of persuasive and smart men. So there is an urgency There is an urgency that Mark intends to communicate, and I desperately want you to respond this morning. That's what I want, to respond to what Jesus has done, what he has said. But Mark isn't saying, and this is the important part, that Andrew and Simon Peter and James and John were sort of pressured into making a quick spur-of-the-moment decision, okay? So it's not... It's not about like, if you're not immediately making a decision and doing some great things for the Lord, then you're disobedient to this text. That's not, that's what, that's not what's going on here. But even then, even then, there's still a pressure that I feel, maybe you feel it this morning, not just about the immediacy or social pressure of an altar call to follow Jesus, something like that. But after we follow Jesus, after we start following after him, along the way, he's making us into fishers of men. He's inviting us into something. And that phrase feels like pressure to me. Follow me, fishers of men, immediately, immediately, immediately. It doesn't feel like something that I really want to do. I don't know if you guys are with me. I don't know if you're with me. I feel pressure and it makes me retreat. That's how I come to this text. I sure hope I'm not alone because that's what I've been reflecting a lot this week. Uh, if you want to if you want to sort of go deeper into this feeling that a lot of us, especially evangelicals, feel, uh, I, I commend to you a book by Daniel Hames called God, God Shines Forth. It's a really good book about mission and what it means to enter into the mission, but that's not where I'm going this morning. So in the early church, in the age of martyrs, as sometimes it's called, Polycarp and Justin and Irenaeus and all many other martyrs, Eusebius of Caesarea in AD 339, he reflected upon this verse and specifically the pressure that he felt when he heard this call to be a fisher of men to enter into this work following after Jesus. And uh, Eusebius writes this, but how can we do it? How can we do it? The disciples might reasonably have answered. How can we preach to Romans? How can we argue with Egyptians? We are brought up to use the Syrian tongue only. What language shall we speak to the Greeks? How shall we persuade Persians, Armenians, Chaldeans, Scythians, Indians, and other scattered nations to give up their ancestral gods and worship the creator of all? How do we do this? What abilities in speaking have we to depend upon in attempting such a work as this? And what hope of success can we have if we dare to proclaim laws directly opposed to the laws about their own gods that have been established for ages among all nations? By what power, Eusebius says, shall we ever survive our daring attempt? That's, That's the pressure that I feel when I think about being a fisherman. And another way to say this, and, and I might be venturing into another topical sermon 
Two weeks in a row, yes, I know. The other, the other way to say this is this text is about evangelism. Evangelism. What does it mean to be someone who follows after Jesus and talks about him? Is a fisher of men who is trying to win souls to follow after Jesus. In other words, evangelism. How should we think about my actions and what we do and how does that relate to what Jesus does? Where is he doing the action? Where are we doing the action? It makes sense, and this is something I've been thinking about. It makes sense that Jesus would do all the action in the Gospels, right? Because he came down from heaven to earth to do some actions for us. We know this, right? We know this. It makes sense, but what about today? What about you and me? Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, and we are called to follow him still here on earth. So... Perhaps, maybe it's even harder for us than it was for the disciples. They could literally follow Jesus as he does all the action, right? Right? But what do we do in his absence? We feel the burden and the need for immediacy of action, maybe even more than they did on that day by the Sea of Galilee. Hear this from Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers. You could translate that fishermen, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, Jeremiah says, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. So Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. He conquers Satan in the wilderness, and now he's standing by the sea looking out at a crowd of Galilean peasants and fishermen. And I know, I'm, I'm, without a doubt, he has this verse in his mind as he's looking at all of these fishermen, all these, all these day workers, all these people who are working with their hands, right? Not the high-class people, but the low-class people. He's looking at all of them, and he's got Jeremiah's words in his head. Look! I'm sending you fishermen. I'm sending you fishermen out to go catch people. I'm going to make you a new kind of fisherman. We don't often think of fishing as dangerous. We don't think of that as dangerous or violent action. But if you're a fish, can you imagine? It's a little bit violent. It's a little bit violent. But Jeremiah, in case you're confused, he adds another metaphor, hunting which is a little bit more on the nose, right? It's a little bit more clearly sort of a violent metaphor. Look, I am sending you out as hunters to go kill people. That probably doesn't work as much in like an evangelism slogan or something like that. You know, you can put a little fish on it and fishers of men, and that seems a little safer to us. But this is a pretty strong statement. You could go even further Hear the words of this great 18th century hymn. Maybe you sang it growing up. Onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ the royal master leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banner go. So there's a lot of intensity here and I, I think Jesus is intending to communicate that follow me fishing 
And I think he's calling to mind hunting and even warfare. And this immediacy gives a sense of urgency to this tax task. It's a lot. It's a lot here. So there's a lot, there's a lot of ways that I could go about the rest of this sermon. Talking about evangelism. Um, you can see a couple of my favorite books about evangelism in the narthex. So I commend those to you. Uh, if you do want to take it, please talk to me because those are my copies, but I would love for you to look at them, take a picture and go buy it yourself, uh, or I would give mine away, but those are my copies that I have highlighted and stuff, so maybe talk to me first, okay? So there's, there's a lot of ways I could attack this sermon. I considered telling a lot of traditional stories, so like the tradition of the early church, of the martyrdom of the apostles, that's the move. This is the move from this text uh, of Polycarp or Ignatius or Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, or one of my favorite stories, which I read really sort of intimately for the first time, the story of Athanasius, just a couple of hundred years later. So there are many places that we could go, but for my money, and I'm going to do this two weeks in a row, I want to look at a story about another faithful witness. No, not C.S. Lewis. Lucy Pevensey. Lucy Pevensey. If you don't know who that is, I will introduce you to Lucy this morning. So this past week, for whatever reason, uh, I started reading C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Ellie. I'd read that story to the kids growing up, but it was mostly to the boys because she wasn't quite ready for it yet. Um, and so I'm not going to spoil, kids, if you haven't read The Chronicles of Narnia yet, I commend them to you. Um, I'm not going to spoil that story for you yet. But one of my favorite things about this story is that the youngest child, the youngest of the four Pevensey children, a little girl by the name of Lucy, she is the first to enter into Narnia. She's the first to enter in. And obviously, as she comes back through the wardrobe into the real world, nobody believes that another world exists inside of a wardrobe. And especially at the first witness is a little girl. You can maybe even imagine the women at the empty tomb. I don't know if Lewis intended that, but I'm sure he did because he was way smarter than I, I will ever be. But here's this little girl saying, hey, I just went to another world inside of a wardrobe. Nobody believes her. So this is an underlying theme. I, I'm not going to prove it to you throughout the Chronicles of Narnia that the weak and the powerless or a little girl, they are thwarting the strong and the powerful with, the, with a word. But I, I'm not going to talk about the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. I'm going to talk about a part of the story from the second book, uh, Prince Caspian. So stay with me. Stay with me. I want to end by telling a story, but i got to set it up first. I have to set it up because if you haven't read it yet, you need a little bit of setup. Um, but I, I, want, I, want to, I want to communicate to you that Lewis has in his mind, and I think it's very clearly in this story, this is what it means to follow Jesus, to be an evangelist. Okay, so I'm not getting technical. I'm not getting theological. I want to tell a story. So here's the setup. At the age of 18, C.S. Lewis volunteered for active duty in the army. And after just a few months of training, a couple of months, he was sent to the front line in World War I. He arrived at the trenches of France on his 19th birthday. He literally got to the front line on his 19th birthday. And after just a few brutal battles, he was wounded at the Battle of Arras in the spring of 1918. So he had just, he had just uh, turned 19 and he was very young and he spent months in the hospital 
Um, and trust me, if, if you were only kind of wounded and not really debilitated, they would send you back to the front line. But he was wounded enough uh, that he was sent home. Lewis was not a fighter. If you know this guy, he was a nerd. He was a scholar. He was an Oxford Don. He was not the typical military guy. But all throughout his life, he defended what he called the odious necessity that men must sometimes go to war in order to have peace. I'm getting to Lucy, I promise. I promise I'm getting to Lucy. But hear this, hear this war imagery, the intensity of Lewis's imagination. In mere Christianity, he says this, the idea of the knight, or else the knight in shining armor, the Christian in arms for the defense of a good cause is one of the great Christian ideas, Lewis says, in mere Christianity. So if Lewis had a favorite hymn, and he was kind of a stodgy old guy, and he didn't like singing all that much, he didn't really like going to church, but he, it grew on him, he, he learned the necessity of that, but I imagine that he probably loved Onward Christian Soldier, because he uses this martial metaphor over and over again. Now, I'm using kind of a technical word there, um, but I'm going to nerd out just a little bit more before I get into the story. Stay with me, stay with me. Mars, you've probably heard the phrase, men are from what? Men are from Mars and women are from Venus, okay? Now, what does that mean? Most of us probably haven't thought about that very much. It's a really old idea. It's an old idea that the planets each have their own personality. They all have their own personality. Mars was, in the old imagination, he was masculine. This planet itself was masculine. And it had in its mind knights and warfare. You think about the phrase martial law that comes from Mars. It has, has bravery in its imagination. And Venus was feminine or soft or beautiful. So men and women are from different planets. That's a simple way to say it. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But there's more to it. There's more to it. Lewis says in a poem um, about these planets, he says this of Mars in the last four lines of this stanza, Mars has mastered his metal's iron that was hammered through hands into holy cross Cruel carpentry, he is cold and strong, necessity's son. Now, poetry is hard to hear. It's hard to read. It's hard to hear. Um, but here's, here's my point. From the beginning of the gospel, according to Mark, to the end, Jesus is pictured as waging warfare against principalities and powers. The language is intense trampling hell and Satan under his feet, as we say in our Eucharistic prayer each week. There, this is what Lewis calls cruel carpentry, or else necessity's son. And you might imagine that necessity's son is embodied in Jesus who waged war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he won. So I'm turning to Narnia now, okay? There's my intro. Here, here comes to my final illustration. We might imagine a great lion pouncing upon a powerless, wintry white pretender to the throne and trampling her under his feet. Some of you might know that I'm teasing an ending to maybe another book there. Okay, so I'm not trying to spoil it for you. But in the second book, in Prince Caspian, the great lion, Aslan, is far off. 
He's not jumping into the battle. He's not trampling the enemy. He's not doing what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. He's far off. He doesn't fight in the battle. So we might imagine that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is like the Gospels. Jesus does the action. He conquers. He crushes. He tramples. He does all these sorts of things. And as we turn to the second book, Prince Caspian, Jesus is now not here. He's ascended to his throne. He's not in the fight. He leaves his disciples to fight in his name. So Prince Caspian begins with the four Pevensey children going back to Narnia at the blast of a war horn. They enter into Narnia in the middle of the war. This is how the story begins. They discover their old armor at the beginning of the story. They fight off soldiers to rescue a dwarf. A hilarious little dwarf. They practice swordsmanship and archery from the very beginning. It's a war. All four children fight. And climactically, Peter and Edmund, they fight in hand-to-hand combat in this story. Now, I don't want to spoil the plot. Okay, I don't want to spoil the plot. But here's where I want to focus here, especially on Lucy. The greatest battle in this story is fought by Lucy. And it has to do with evangelism. Okay? So if you, if you remember anything, I would love for you to remember nerdy stuff about the Gospel of Mark. But I'm just giving you a story. A story. What does it mean? What does it mean to enter into the fight? Onward Christian soldier. The first chivalrous masculine knight in the story is not a Martian man, but a little brave girl. I think this is very important for us. So let's look to Lucy. Like the first book, Lucy is the first witness. She's the first martyr. But this time, they're all in Narnia together. She's not the only one inside. And as the children are hiking through a dense wood, and they don't know it yet, but they're going to a battle. They're going to the base camp of a battle. They're heading to war. Lucy wakes up in the middle of the night, and she sees Aslan. And she says this, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last! The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward, just touched her nose with his tongue. My dog does that to me all the time. I know what that feels like. His warm breath came all round her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Welcome, child. This time... Because of his beastly behavior in the last book, Edmund is the only one of his siblings who believes Lucy. But he still has a really hard time believing her. He struggles because Aslan is there. He's clearly present to them as they're going through the wood, but he isn't immediately visible to them. He's not pouncing in like a lion. If you go back to the others now, Aslan says, and wake them up, And tell them you have seen me again and that you must all get up at once and follow me. What will happen? There is only one way of finding out. Do you mean that is what you want me to do? Gasped Lucy. Yes, little one, said Aslan. Will the others see you too? Asked Lucy. Certainly not at first, said Aslan. Later on, it depends. But they won't believe me, said Lucy. It doesn't matter, says Aslan. 
Oh dear, oh dear, says Lucy. I was so pleased at finding you again. And I thought you'd let me stay and I thought you'd come roaring in and frighten all the enemies away like last time. And now everything is going to be horrid. She's feeling the pressure of evangelism in a new age of Narnia. It's hard for you, little one, said Aslan, but things never happen the same way twice. Aslan doesn't come roaring in the story. He's ascended, and yet he's still there. He's there right in the middle of the battle. Now, child, said Aslan, when they had left the trees behind them, I will wait here, go and wake the others, and tell them to follow. If they will not, then you at least must follow me alone. It is a terrible thing to have to wake four people, all older than yourself and all very tired, for the purpose of telling them something they probably won't believe and making them do something they certainly won't like. Does that sound like evangelism to you? Oof. I mustn't think about it. I must just do it, thought Lucy. So the story goes on. She tells her brothers and sisters, and each time that she tells them, they don't believe her. You can imagine, they don't believe her. Go back to sleep, they say in a sleepy fog. You're dreaming. You're just a little child. You're just a little child. She told them about Aslan, and they rolled over and went back to sleep. And each time she told them, Every time she told them, it sounded less convincing to her. Does that sound like it to you? Have you shared the gospel? And each time you, you sort of talk about it, you talk about Jesus, you feel like, what, what am I even doing here? This is where she was. Lucy is the only one who can see Aslan. Even as she begins to doubt, Lucy resolves to follow Aslan whether anyone else does or not. She's going to follow. I'm going to follow him, no matter what. This time, it's Susan, not Edmund, who is spiteful. Everyone doesn't believe this time, but Susan is spiteful. But slowly, first Edmund, and then Peter, and then Susan, and even Trumpkin the dwarf. And this guy is maybe, he's maybe the modern skeptic. He's sort of like a naturalist. He's a duty guy. Um, He's, it's a beautiful picture. He's pounced on by the lion. I mean, he pummels him, and then he's like, okay, I believe, I believe, right? We know that person. Remembering the soft nose of the lion and his warm embrace, Lucy followed him no matter how they responded. Nobody believed her. And Susan, after all of her spitefulness, finally she sees the lion. In a very small voice, she speaks, Lucy. Yes, said Lucy. I see him now. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. But I've been far worse than you know. I really believed it was him, said Susan. He, I mean, yesterday when he warned us not to go down to the fir wood and I really believed it was him tonight when you woke us up. I mean, deep down inside, I believed. Or I could have if I'd let myself. But I just wanted to get out of the woods and, oh, I don't know. Whatever am I to say to him? Whatever I am to say to him. Lucy suggests... Perhaps 
you won't need to say much at all. This I submit to you, and the full force of this, you've got to read the whole story. This is what it means to be a fisher of men. To go to battle. To hunt for souls. I don't care what the metaphor you use. To march onward as a Christian soldier. When you read about the church militant. This is the idea. Think of simple, humble, bold, and brave Lucy. A little girl. She speaks, and then nobody listens. She follows her king. And God is kind. After an awful pause, the deep voice said, Susan. Susan made no answer, but the others thought she was crying. You have listened to fears, child, said Aslan. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget your fears. Are you brave again? A little, Aslan, said Susan. Be a witness like Lucy. Be a warrior just like Lucy. Be a martyr even just like Lucy. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand. And let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Let us pray for the church and for the world, saying, Hear our prayer. For the peace of the whole world and for the well-being and unity of the people of God. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For Foley, our Archbishop, and Stephen, Quigg, and Allen, our bishops, 
and for all the clergy and people of our diocese and congregation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For all those who proclaim the gospel at home and abroad, and for all who teach and disciple others, 